listening to Historical Fiction Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, fellow historical fiction lovers. I have a great show for you today. Today, we're talking to Brian Davis. Brian is the author of several speculative fiction series, including the best-selling Dragons in Our Midst. He and his wife, Susie, work together as an author-editor team in rural western Tennessee. Now, you're probably thinking, Allison, this show is called Historical Fiction Unpacked. Why are you having a speculative fiction author on the show? And it's because he's written a historical fantasy. So he's going to talk to us about his historical fantasy book called Let the Ghosts Speak. Um, I read it. It's great. And it's so interesting. His book was inspired by a dream he had. So he talks about that. He talks about the theme of justice, which is woven through his book. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to clarify something that comes up. Um, Brian's book, Let the Ghosts Speak, is an epistolary novel. And you might not have heard that term before, but it refers to a novel written as a series of documents. So it can be a a series of letters, or it could be a diary entry or diary entries. It could be newspaper clippings or other documents. Um, In this case, it's a written account by the main character himself. So now let's listen to my interview with Brian. Brian Davis, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You released a historical fantasy titled Let the Ghosts Speak in April of this year. Can you tell me about this novel? Well, it takes place in 1860 in Paris, France. It's about our hero, Justin Trotter, who's an immigrant from uh, England, along with his blind twin sister. And they're trying to make their way in Paris. Uh, They're both poor and uh, Justin is trying to make his way as a translator, and uh, he's also a part-time actor, part-time student, and he runs into quite a bit of trouble that, uh, I don't know how far you want me to get into this story, but <laughs> he, he gets accused of murder, and he meets with some very strange characters who try to help him. They're both a help and a hindrance. They're actually ghosts. Uh, right. We might revisit who these ghosts are, but um, I now in the past you've written several speculative fiction series, including your best-selling series *Dragons in Our Midst*. What made you switch genres all of a sudden? Uh, it was I've been doing fantasy for a long time, uh, but there was this one dream I had that had been nagging at me. I had this dream about. I guess about 14 years ago. It was actually the first chapter of the book in which Justin uh, goes to this party and he gets banished to the upstairs library where he meets little Jean, as you know, since you've read it. And when he tries to comfort this crying little boy, the boy just vanishes. And I remember waking up from that dream in a cold sweat. Why is this boy vanishing? Was he a ghost? And so I, I literally said, I need to go back to sleep to finish this dream. And I did. It did go on. Wow. And uh, 
Justin, I didn't have a name for the character then, but Justin uh, was frightened and went downstairs and tried to tell other people and nobody would believe him, which is a little different from the, the how the story turned out. But in the dream, all of that happened. Mm. And I just had to brainstorm to come up with the rest of it. <clears throat> and I realized it's still speculative, but it has a yes. very strong historical foundation. So I, uh, I made the framework around it. I decided it would be in the 1800s. So it would be modern enough for people to be, to be aware of the trappings and still uh, removed enough to be exciting and interesting as uh, the readers go back in time a bit. Right. So in your dream, was it a historical setting or was it? Yes, modern? it was definitely a historical setting, okay. uh, historical. It was not modern. People were carrying uh, <clears throat> lanterns and candles, just like in the book. There were no electric lights. So I knew it was historical. And everything, everybody was dressed in uh, costume, as just like in the, uh, in the yeah. book. But you could tell from the hairstyles and people's manner of speech that it was historical. Although in my dream, everybody spoke English. Uh, mm -hmm. I made it so that they, it was set in France. Be because of the people that, that uh, he met, he met uh, martyrs from, the, from, from France. So they were French martyrs. So I decided to set it in France. Right. Um, was there anything that precipitated this dream? Could you figure <clears throat> out where it came from or... Was it just out of the blue? <laughs> well, I've long had a strong sense of justice uh, and being disturbed by people being punished, even though they are innocent. Mm. Uh, been always been against government oppression, and uh, even though I am a, a Christian myself, I I have a hard time with uh, overly oppressive. Uh, church authority as well, and all right. of that, all of that came together to make me interested in a story in which I can follow the oppressed person. And while I, I was, be, I would be showing the oppressors in in a very negative light. I also wanted to show that there were good people out there too. A, a realistic blend, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. Okay, so you mentioned brainstorming, but how, wh what kind of, pro how far did the dream go? Did it, did it include any of the ghosts other than Jean or? <clears throat> uh, it included Joan of Arc. She was okay. the, the main one. The uh, Francine character who uh, was masquerading as Joan of Arc was also in the story. So it went so far as to have both Joan and the masquerader. Uh, both in the dream. And that's what really wow. helped me brainstorm to figure yeah. out that these were, these ghosts were actually dead martyrs. Now, had you been reading about jo Joan of Arc or? Joan of Arc's long been a, a favorite of mine. My, okay. One of my favorite books of all time is Mark Twain's version of Joan of Arc. I don't know if mm -hmm. you're familiar with that. I'm not. Uh, I, you mentioned that in your author's note, but I have not read it. It's a brilliant book. My second favorite novel of all time. Wow. It's got Mark Twain's brilliant writing and, of course, the history of Joan. Mm -hmm. And you put that together and you come up with a fabulous character for any story. So I thought I'd bring her back from the dead. Right. That's great. How did you go about discovering that, you know, adding the other ghosts, adding the other elements? 
once you, I mean, in the dream, did you already know that Justin was accused of a murder or did that come as you continued writing the story? Uh, I knew that Justin would be persecuted because uh, he, when he came downstairs, people wouldn't believe him. Mm-hmm. You know, in the book, he did not come out and say, I saw ghosts. Uh, right. But that's what started the dream. I knew that if people didn't believe him and he became persecuted because people thought he was insane, <clears throat> that led me to believe, that led me to the story of, and the theme of being improperly accused. So I needed something that he could be accused of that would be sharp enough, that would be intriguing enough to draw readers in through the rest of the story. I didn't think being accused of insanity would be as uh, intriguing. Let's, right. let's start. Let's start with accused of murder, and then let the reader wonder if he's really the murderer, really insane. Uh, yeah, we have we have what we call an unreliable narrator here telling the story, and mm-hmm. we don't know we don't know how accurate he is. We we believe as the reader that he's telling the story the best he knows how, but is it really accurate? Right. So what gave you the idea to, now you wrote it as like an epistolary novel from yes. Justin, from Justin's point of view, most of it is from Justin's point of view. Um, yes. And then a different character toward the end. But what, why did you write it as an epistolary novel? <clears throat> In order to dive deeply into the psyche of someone who is unjustly accused and has to um, vindicate himself, I I couldn't see any way to do it unless except to dive into his point of view and show his desperation, show uh, how how deeply it affects someone to be uh, treated the way he was, to actually be betrayed by someone he very much uh, was fond of, and at the same time the desperation of I'm having to run for my life when someone I love dearly needs me and I can't be gone from her, you know, his sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted I wanted this double and triple jeopardy effect and you can't really do that unless you do it from the affected person's point of view. I love the inspector in the story. Yes, uh, so did I. It, it would have been wonderful to show everything from his point of view, but I don't think you could have gotten to the depths of Justin's turmoil from from the inspector's point of view but then because i like the inspector so much i decided to show the end of it from his point of view as the person who was in charge of the justice aspect of the story and Mm -hmm. to show show how much he really cared about the right thing being done even though he was one of justin's main persecutors and offenders at the same time which was also a lot of fun right so I really enjoyed reading it as as though Justin had written it. And even if I thought the novel needed to be first-person point of view from the main character's perspective, I don't know if I would have necessarily thought of a, a written account that he wrote, but it really it really worked well for what you were trying to do. It was, I wanted it to, to do it that way so I would have something believable. You know, someone it was dug up out of a... Uh, a time capsule. Right. And uh, the only way that you can do that is to have the person who knew everything to write it himself. I wanted it to feel real like a someone pulled a diary out of a time capsule. 
Yes. And yeah. then you had the inspector write the rest of it because he's the only one who could have, as without telling spoilers, there's nobody else who could have written the rest of it. Right. Yeah, that's so, true. <laughs> so I put it all together that way and, it, and it, it worked. I consulted with my son, who my eldest son, who uh, was a police detective for years. Uh, now he's a now he's a forensic scientist. Uh, so I had the mind of an, an investigator help me with how the inspector would think and act. Someone who really wanted to pursue justice, but wasn't so much of a, a Javert, if you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. from Les Miserables, uh, still, had a, still had a heart. He, he wanted what was right and not necessarily uh, justice uh, at, at any cost. Mm-hmm. So I had that perspective as well. And you could see that in the inspector throughout. And right. Oh, it was fun to put him in there. He, actually, he was my favorite character in the story. He may have been mine also. Yeah, he was a he was a great character. So you mentioned that you, you know, talked to your son to get the inspector's perspective and you read, is it a novel about Joan of Arc? By the Joan of Arc, is a, it is a novel. It's, um, it, it's historical. Uh, he was in Europe for 14 years researching it. It was actually the work of wow. his life. A lot of people are unaware of it. Yeah, he even wrote. He said, "This is my finest work, and I know it well." Wow! And when you read it, it's, it just blows me away every time. I've read it six times now. It's just so gorgeous. <laughs> That's great. That's. And then great. I also I read a lot of other research. I did historical uh, books on uh, French jurisprudence during the time, what the culture was like. Uh, I've read many nonfiction books, at least seven or eight nonfiction books from the time to see what the technology was, uh, you know, like gas lamps and the fact that they were going through a major renovation in Paris and yes, even how often the the rivers would flood, you know, everything that's in there was based on uh, books that I read. So I did a lot of research. I did a lot of, looked at a lot of YouTube videos and what the catacombs looked like uh, under the under the streets of Paris. It was a lot of fun, a lot of work, but I hope it came across as uh, accurate and atmospheric, if you will. Definitely, it did. Um, So how does that compare to the research when you write a a fantasy novel? Or, I mean, this was fantasy, but a fantasy novel that's not historical. Well, there are major differences. of course, there are, there are many different kinds of fantasy. One is a contemporary fantasy. It's where you have a real setting right. at a certain time and add fantasy elements like my Dragons in Our Myths series. Mm. And I had settings like West Virginia and Montana and Maryland, and I would go to those places and conduct a research and find out this is where this happened and this is where that happened. I even went to England for one of the books to uh, – find my locations and and uh, take photographs and walk the streets where my characters walked. So I did a lot of research for the contemporary fantasies. Now there is also other world fantasies where everything's different and you can't possibly go to another world to do to right. do that kind of research. So the research is a lot more limited for other world fantasies, but you always uh, have to stay true to what uh, your how you build your own world and not violate the, the rules that you set for yourself. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of 
um, real world research that you can do about a world that you built yourself. No, but in world building like that, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to stay uh, continuous with the world that you've built. You can't violate your own rules. Right. I mean, at the same time, you don't want it to, to do so much world building that it gets tedious and boring. So right. that's, uh, there's a trade-off there. So did you have to do, did you have to keep track of what your rules were with this book? Because we have different types. We, we have different types of ghosts <laughs> and, um, well, I allowed my ghost personality to be as different as uh, regular human personalities. And they certainly were, you know, Michael is quite different from Joan and uh, they, the two of them were different from the children. And uh, Justin also meets a certain person. Don't want to spoil it too much, but right. uh, who's quite different from the others. Yes. But, but how the, ghosts were allowed to interact with humans, whether or not people could see them. Those were rules that I had to be careful to keep mm-hmm. because we know that the, ins- the inspector was able to see some and not others. And so he even had to question those contradictions. So a reader might go, why could the inspector see this ghost, but not that ghost? Mm-hmm. And so I had to address that in the story. So those kinds of discontinuities, you have to um, you know, mention so that say, Hey reader, I know that you've seen this and here's why. So that kind of thing had to be addressed. So I had to watch out for things like that for sure. Right. Okay. So back to it being an epistolary novel, have you read other epistolary novels that, that you kind of modeled this after or. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Joan of Arc is by Mark Twain is an oh, epistolary okay. novel. It's, it's written uh, by the by Joan of Arc's scribe and his recollections. Okay. So uh, the entire book was this scribe's writing and how uh, he made an account of everything that happened. So yeah, I, I copy that style because I love it so much. Okay. Okay. So you've mentioned a few times um, the theme of justice, and I thought. It was so interesting that you included several personifications of blind justice in the book. Um, can you expand more on why you wanted to bring attention to that concept that you had even more than one representation of it? Sure. Um, <clears throat> of course, we've heard of blind justice and you've seen the statues with uh, yes. a female uh, with a blindfold on. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that in France, the statues of justice do not have a blindfold on, while the ones in London do. Mm. So, so it's an interesting difference in culture. And you know, the inspector, when he went to London, he must have seen that yes. and noticed that difference. And justice needs to be blind in that it is not to allow, not allowed to be prejudiced to financial status or uh, a, a social elitism. Uh, justice must uh, see only the facts and, and not see the trappings. And that's why this one ghost had said that his little charge, justice, had to become blind. That was what she needed to, to learn. And, and to, uh, you know, all of the little martyred children had to learn something. Right. So it's injustice in our society is usually caused by a judge who sees what he and and studies and examines 
and takes into account things he ought not to take into account, mm-hmm. which is might be a political stand or someone's wealth or a bribe or, or something like that. That That is what usually causes injustice mm-hmm. and why justice needs to be blind. So when I look at uh, injustice in our society and uh, what is missing, and it's the judge needs to be blind. Right. And in some some cultures, it's not. And in some, it is. And it needs to be, in all cultures, in every case, the, the best judge is a blind judge, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. But it's interesting that Justin, you have the ghosts explain to him that he's blind in some ways, and that's actually his downfall. So it's interesting that you kind of turned it around. It's it's meant to be a thought piece. Yes. And because when some people say uh, justice needs to be blind to certain things, we do not also don't want justice to be naive. We don't want justice to be easily fooled. And that was Justin's problem. Mm-hmm. The point being, we are to be to be blind to certain things, mm-hmm. but to be quite aware and open-eyed about other things. And the whole point of the story is to understand the difference and to be discerning and wise. Right. I'm giving away the themes now, aren't I? Yeah, well, <laughs> I was going to ask if you wanted to talk about any of the other themes, but it seems well, when like... when you get you to like- the end, when you get to the end of the story, there's a whole lot that's left to the reader right. to come up with. Uh, you know, who is justice and why? And, you know, what is this blind justice? Why do we have a sister who is blind and this other personification of justice who's becoming blind? <clears throat> and Justin, who's been called blind, and who are these martyrs? There's just so much for the reader to digest. Mm-hmm. Uh, giving away little hints of it, it's okay. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that you included some like references to doctrinal differences, like predestination. And I realize with the ghosts of the martyrs, it's kind of difficult to avoid that. But um, did you have other intentions with including these differences of thought or? Well, I do have my own opinions regarding uh, certain doctrines, uh, but I always wanted it to be from the ghost's point of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael, was going to be anti-Calvinist because he was persecuted by the Calvinists. So if you're, if you're reading this and you're a Calvinist and Michael says something you don't like, well, that's his point of view, that that's what he's going to believe. And, you know, don't let that upset you because that's just the way it's going to be. And Joan is going to be a a good Catholic girl and she's going to say Catholic things. (laughs) And if you're if you're not a Catholic, don't let that upset you. That's just who she is and what she believes. Mm-hmm. But if you read it carefully, you'll probably figure out where where my uh, beliefs are. And it's always uh, I'm always a champion of justice, and I do believe some views of God are unjust, mm-hmm. and the scriptures would uh, contradict those views. Right. That, I don't think I'll go any farther than that, but just remember it's the characters who are saying it, and I don't necessarily agree with them. Right. But sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm. Let's go back in time to when you first started writing. Did you start writing? I I know you said you worked in 
computers for a long time, but were you writing even before that? I started writing about uh, 27 years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. All my kids were homeschooled and we weren't doing very well with the writing curriculum. None of our kids enjoyed writing at all. So I decided, how about if we just write a story together? Let's get together and we'll write a story. So I wrote a first chapter and presented it to the kids. Actually, my wife read it out loud. And I said, all right, kids, what do you think is going to happen next? What's the good guy going to do? What's the bad guy going to do? And they give me their ideas. And I try to put their ideas into the story. And then over time, the story would build and they'd see their ideas coming to life. And then I started asking them, well, instead of telling me your ideas, now write them down. And so they started writing their ideas and their ideas got bigger and bigger uh, to the point where I couldn't keep up with their ideas anymore. So they just went off and wrote their own stories, which is exactly what I was hoping for, that they would see the fun of being creative right, and, and catch the bug. And it turned out that I was the one who caught the bug. <laughs> so I started writing more. Uh, actually, one of my daughters uh, ended up being a published author herself. So uh, it worked out well for her. All my kids are, are, are good writers and in one way or the other, but one of them became a published author. So I just started writing more and more and seeking publication. Um, I learned that I had a lot to learn. Uh, I started going to writers' conferences and reading books on writing. Uh, It just got better and better. And then one day I had a dream about a boy who could breathe fire. It's funny, a lot of my stories come from dreams. Right. And And that became Dragons in Our Midst. Still took eight years to get a publisher. So what was that uh, what was that process like? Can you tell us how you <clears throat> finally got a publisher? Well, I started sending off this query. It took me a year to write the first draft of the Dragons in Our Midst. Mm-hmm. Sent it off to publisher, got lots of rejections. So I made it better and better. And finally I met a publisher at a writer's conference. This was eight years into the process and two hundred rejections later who liked an idea I had for a nonfiction book. This publisher did not do fiction at the time. And uh, I got a contract for a book on father. Being a father of seven, I had some knowledge of that. Right. And he just asked me one day, so what else have you written? And I told him about Dragons in Our Midst. And he said, well, I'd like to see it. What? I said, well, I thought you didn't do fiction. I said, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so they read it and they loved it. And they uh, they published Raising Dragons, first book in Dragons in Our Midst, and that's been my best-selling book since uh, 2004. Wow. And still is, still is my number one seller. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it was the first fantasy published by a Christian author in a long, long time. You know, Lord of the Rings and uh, Chronicles of Narnia were originally published by uh, mainstream publishers. Right. And Dragons in Our Midst was the first fantasy in a long wow. time. And it kind of opened the gates for many more after that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so are you still with that same publisher? No, I bought my rights uh, back from them. Uh, they started moving away from the fiction genre. Mm-hmm. And I have since sold Dragons in Our Midst to Tyndale. And they will be republishing it next year. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. And so it's going to be a much bigger publisher now. Uh they're going to do all new covers, and it should come out about mid-year next year. Mm-hmm. So is that adult fantasy or? No, it's it's definitely youth fantasy, uh, probably 10 years old to 16 years old. Okay. 
That's great. I'll, my son will actually love reading those when they come out again next year. Yeah, I've done mostly youth. Uh, Let the Ghost Speak is um, probably my first design completely for adults because, you know, there's some material in there that uh, it's not, you know, there's it's not unwholesome. It's just adult. Yeah, I wouldn't hand it to my 10-year-old, but but yeah. No. But it's still definitely handled well. Okay, so what are you writing now? What can you tell us about it? I am working on a, a post-apocalyptic science fiction series called The Oculus Gate. The first book is called Heaven Came Down, and uh, I just finished the second book called Invading Hell. Okay. Uh, it's definitely strong science fiction, kind of uh, military, militia, rebels uh, fighting against the tyrannical rulers who uh, pretend to be angels. And most of the earth has uh, bowed to them to be their rulers, but these one rebel group uh, doesn't believe it, that they're thinks that they're phony and they have to fight against an overwhelming odds to bring down this angel hierarchy. That's uh, tyrannical and oppressive. Okay. So we have to follow the rebels. Wow. To uh, defeat this group. It's a, it's definitely post-apocalyptic, a lot of action. Right. I call, I call it supernatural meets mission impossible. Okay. Great. Do you think that you'll go back to writing historical fiction at all, or was that just a one-time well, for you? Yeah, I don't think it's one-time. I think Let the Ghost Speak is the best book I've ever written. Uh, I I loved doing it, and my, pub- my publisher has said, this book is begging for a sequel, and I said, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but I could write something with the same... Um, you know, the same atmosphere, uh, as you know, the story, it really, there's really no sequel to that story. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I would expect a sequel from it, but no, but I could write something with the same feel, yeah. the same atmosphere, uh, the same kind of, uh, deep meanings and strong, but, uh, strong themes that make readers think, I really like really like doing that. I did this book is not a spoon feed the theme kind of book. Mm-hmm. You definitely have to think about it, and I like doing that. I like respecting my readers in that regard. Absolutely, because I write. I like writing for kids, but the themes are far more spoon fed in those books. Yeah, and this one, you, the readers going. All right, there's something more here. Let me think about that. And one reader wrote to me and said, "It, it took me a week before I realized that justice was a metaphor." Oh. <sighs> and as you know, she is. Yeah. She's a metaphor. Yeah. I hope you do write another book like this. By the way, um, but how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Other than like the themes that you're bringing out, do you think that there that looking at history at that time. And, and even it's interesting because it's almost it's your book is not a time slip, but um, since you bring in characters from the further past than Justin's time, mm-hmm. um, it's, there are similar elements because you're looking back in history and then further back in history. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's why I like bringing Joan of Arc into it because 
there were some things she didn't understand, some things she was naive about. She didn't even understand her own fame in France at the time and why she would be famous. Uh, but what I like showing is, and, and I'm also a Bible student and I, and I study the history of the Bible a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's fun, interesting, intriguing to see that people don't change. That yeah. There are so many characteristics of the human nature that are the same then as they are now. Right. But you also see how people's reactions to things do change. At the deepest level, humans are still humans. Mm -hmm. But how they react to things and how they are affected by culture and by media, that does change over time. There were times when people were more steadfast. And uh, over different eras, people could be more fickle. Uh, and it's it's fun to examine the different times and see how that is. But there, we all always have elements with people who are, uh, say, media bound. You notice in the in the trial when people were uh, following the sensationalism, people still do that today. Absolutely. Uh, but I think we have different mixtures. Uh, frankly, I think more people are affected by media now than they were at other eras. Right. But but you'll always see that type of person in every culture and every era, and it's it's fun to examine all these different ways that people act and react, and in many ways people are the same always. So that's that, that's one thing I enjoyed bringing out, and why I liked going into the historical fiction too to examine some of those things. And I, and like I said, as a Bible student, I. This morning, I was doing a study in Ezra and watching how the people, they were the same back then, too, in many ways. Yeah. Both in their in their errors and in their courage, you see the same types of people. Right. So how does that help you? How can you apply that to your life today when you, when you see that everyone was the same like that, in that way? Uh, to avoid... To avoid the foolishness and the errors that I see in different time periods, uh, and to be able to recognize uh, manipulation and injustice and uh, selfishness, uh, being able seeing it in so many different categories and and time, more able to discern those same issues now, and to avoid the foolishness, and to also. Uh, look for the uh, the earmarks of courage and heroic sacrifice. And that's one thing that's in all of my stories is sacrificial heroism. Mm. And you know, Justin tried so hard to be a sacrificial hero, <laughs> and he he messed up quite a bit. But he was a sacrificial hero, right? And I always put that in all my heroes. He wanted so badly to help his sister. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had a soft spot there. I mean, he was so tender toward her. And so I look for the goodness. I look for the positive. I look for the virtues in every era that I study so that I can find how to do that and encourage it in my own time. Yeah, that's great. We know that you love Mark Twain's novel about Joan of Arc. Did you tell us the title of that? 
It's called Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. Okay. But other than that book, can you recommend any historical fiction that you love or um, particularly what's one of your favorite books that you read this year in this in this genre? Well, you remember I said that Mark Twain's uh, Joan of Arc was my second favorite novel. Oh. My fa- yeah, my favorite is To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Very good. And that's historical fiction. And I think it's the, the best novel I've ever read. And you might notice it was also written first person as a recollection. Yes. Uh, yeah. It also, uh, both Joan of Arc and To Kill a Mockingbird have a trial in which there is injustice. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's uh, told from the point of view of someone after the fact. Yes. All three books have those. I mean, Joan of Arc, my book, and To Kill a Mockingbird have all of those characteristics. Yes. And that's, for some reason, I just gravitate toward that. And my third favorite novel of all time is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Okay. Are you familiar yes, with that? Yes, I love that one. It's been a long time since yes. I read it. First, first person, recollection, major trial scene, and injustice. Right. All of those aspects are in that book as well. It's I'm, funny how I gravitate toward that. Yes. Well, it's important for you to get that message across, and I'm glad you did it with this book. It's very powerful. But when when I when I need something to read, I very often just grab one of those again because <laughs> <laughs> I'll search for a good book to read, and I get so disappointed with so many of the modern books. Right. So I'll just grab Joan of Arc again and read that. <laughs> I'll read Till to, to We Have Faces again. I remember the first time I read that book, I was thinking, okay, why am I reading this book? It's just, it's kind of weird. Uh, I don't really like the main character very much. And then as I went on, I, I just started nodding and going, okay, I see what he's doing. Oh, oh, this is brilliant. <laughs> and it's the C.S. Lewis was a brilliant author. Right. Yeah, and it, every time I read a truly great book, I find something new and something helpful and for my own life and for my own writing as well. Mm-hmm. So I believe I've become a much better writer than I was before. Mm. So this was a great conversation, Brian. Can you tell me, tell our listeners where they can buy your books and where they can find you online well, and all of that? Well, you can... Always get them at Amazon. That's a, that's a go-to for a lot of people. Uh, Christianbook.com has all my books. My own website, if you want an autographed copy. Oh. Uh, Davis-crossing.com, D-A-V-I-S, my last, my, my last name. Davis-crossing, C-R-O-S-S-I-N-G.com. And uh, you can also find me at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Brian Davis dot fans, F-A-N-S. And, you know, Barnes & Noble, you go there and they don't have some Barnes and Nobles will have them and some won't depends, you know, they can't carry everything, but you can order them there for sure. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. I'm glad you liked the book and I do hope to write another historical fiction someday. I hope you do. Thanks, Brian. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk to Brian Davis. I had a lot of fun. If you enjoy this podcast, could you subscribe 
and leave a star rating and review on iTunes or on whatever platform you're using to listen to it. Um, You can also share it with your friends and go check out the show notes at alisontreat.com. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T.com. You may have noticed that Brian talked a lot about Mark Twain today. He really loves that author, um, and it's well-deserved, of course. Um, There's a quote that is attributed to Mark Twain that nobody can really prove that he said, but for some reason, they still keep saying that Mark Twain said it. Um, He said, supposedly, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So go read historical fiction and find those rhymes.